0: G'day! My name's Brock Cook and welcome to Occupied. Uh, Today I'd like to talk to you about a little project that I undertook a little while ago called Operation Occupation whilst I was working on an acute mental health unit to try and increase the amount of occupation that I did day to day. So thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy. So, I'm wanting to give you a bit of an insight into really how I, in a lot of ways, developed into the OT that I eventually became, uh, and it all kind of happened around this one critical moment in my career. Uh, it's a it's a moment that I've, in hindsight, has been called Operation Occupation, named by a good friend of mine, but I'll get into that in a sec. I was... Working at an acute unit, an acute mental health unit, and I was gradually falling into this pattern of really not enjoying what I was doing. I didn't really know why. I didn't feel like an OT, but I I really struggled to actually articulate what it was that was really putting me off what i wasn't enjoying and therefore i wasn't really able to find what i needed to change and i was watching a presentation on the ot24vx which is a 24-hour virtual ot conference Uh, it's all online and i was watching this presentation by dr ellen nicholson now doctor now she wasn't at the time but I was watching her presentation about her PhD research, and it was about creating occupation-centered communities of practice. And it got me thinking, or it really got me thinking about my current situation, and I started to think, well, I don't feel like I'm an OT, but it might be because I'm not really using occupation in my day-to-day. I couldn't even have told you an instance up until that point at that particular work site, where I felt like I had genuinely used occupation as my therapeutic medium. So I shot off some emails um, to a a few friends of mine who I deeply respect, highly academic people, and went, this is my situation. Can you, I was actually asking for reading material. So can you send me some um, references that I'll look up, for resources that I might be able to start trying to nut this problem out with. What I got back was just an absolute epic amount of uh, journal articles, chapters, ideas, concepts, discussions, and I started working my way through them. Now, at that point would have been the very first time that I was introduced to the concept of occupational science. I hadn't really heard of it up until that point so that opened up a whole new world to me on terms of occupation so from there i started to get this understanding about the concept of using occupation as ends and occupation as means and it really that particular concept really hit home to me and i now believe it to be what sets ot apart from every other profession But at the time, I hadn't even come across it. So I'd finally found what I felt was missing from my current practice. And that was the occupation as means. But then I needed to come up with an idea of, well, how do I actually implement this change practice in my current setting? So I set out firstly by trying to work out, well, what am I actually doing? So I mapped my day-to-day activities. I did an occupational analysis on being an occupational therapist and what I found was that the majority of my time was spent sitting in meetings, uh, ward rounds, staff meetings, executive meetings, uh, all kinds of different meetings and I was spending something like 30 hours a week in these meetings. Couple that with other various stuff and operational-related activities, and I ended up with something like four hours a week of direct client contact, where I had the opportunity to do something one-on-one with a client. Four hours a week. (laughs) It makes me sad just thinking about it. Now, I had two things that I could do, because I didn't really know how much support i was going to have from the workplace itself around changing what i was doing day to day so i had one option which was to try and find a way to absolutely maximize that four hours a week which was my fallback plan that was obviously the worst case scenario was i'm not able to change anything and I'm not getting any support to change anything. I have to continue doing all of this other random stuff. So I had better make the most of this four hours. That was the absolute worst case scenario because something was going to change no matter what. Best case scenario was I gather support, I'm able to make my argument to change practice, and I can free up a lot more time. So, Anyway, lucky for me, I had a unit manager at the time who, although was a nurse, was very aware and had worked with OTs really closely in the past, so was very supportive of what we do and what we have to offer clients on an acute mental health unit. And I still, to this day, don't know what I would have done without her. She was amazing and pretty much left it up to me to come up with a plan, um, be able to demonstrate uh, using evidence what I was doing was actually going to benefit the ward and the clients on the ward, uh, and then put it to her. I didn't have to go via anyone else. It just had to be a discussion between me and her. And we did that during our supervision. What I ended up doing was rather than sit in every single ward round meeting. So there was five of them every week and they usually went for a couple, two to three hours each. Rather than sit in every single one, I only went to the ones for the clients that I was working for. So traditionally, what had been happening was that the OT would pick up referrals from the ward rounds and then would somehow try and fit all of those referrals into their four hours a week. I flipped it on its head. So if I freed up enough time during the week, I would self, I would find my own referrals. It's a blanket referral on a ward. So I would go around, see who needed me, have a chat with everyone, screen them. um, Who needed my input, then I would only go to the ward rounds for the people that I had been working with. And I would only go for their presentation. I wouldn't have to sit through the whole thing. That cut down my ward round time from about 12 to 15 hours a week down to about two, which was massive. So that literally freed up 10 to 12 to 10 to 13 hours a week that I could spend with people doing occupational therapy. That was, that was the biggest one. Um, I also, rather than be the rep for the allied health team, in a lot of these other meetings, executive meetings, um, that kind of thing. I put it to them that because we're all on the same level that that workload should be shared. So that workload became shared amongst the rest of the allied health team. So um, psych, social worker, etc., etc. So that freed up another couple of hours. So what I ended up with at the end of it all uh, was about 24 hours. Of a an eighty hour oh, sorry a forty hour work week, uh, being freed up for one on one client time, so I went from four to twenty four, uh, which was massive, massive difference, and surprise surprise made the hugest difference into my personal enjoyment of the work. I really enjoyed going to work again. I really loved what I was doing. I loved. Talking with the people, working with the people, getting to know them, and helping them on their journey to recovery. by the end of that little project, I absolutely loved what I was doing. So it's all well and good to say, "Yep, this happened, this is what the outcome was, and everything was sweet uh, at the end of it. But there was a few a few key things that I identified throughout um, that really needed to happen one of them obviously I spoke about before was the support it can be done with or without support you can make changes within your current workplace with or without the support of anyone else like I said if I wasn't able to change anything else I still had four hours that I could do with whatever I wanted to do with. So worst case scenario, absolute worst case scenario, I had four hours that I could try and absolutely optimise for my, the people that I work with. Gaining support and talking to those in places of power. So in an acute ward uh, here, it was my NUM, so my nurse unit manager, and the CNCs who were the day-to-day kind of managers. Getting them on board was a big step for me in being able to roll this project out really quickly and efficiently. I didn't get as much resistance from the rest of the the team or anyone else because I had those managers on board. They were very supportive and I understand that some places are not going to see what you're trying to do in the same way you do. There are very few people that think like OTs and it's hard for us sometimes to try and explain to other people how we think. So I understand gaining that support might be difficult for some people, but that I just cannot in- encourage you more to not stop trying. There is a massive evidence base out there for occupation-based practice. Huge. There is a massive evidence base that talks about the need to change practice, to be more occupation-based, to always be aiming for being more occupation-based. If it takes putting together some of that evidence into a presentation or into a even a business report to gain the support of your management team, then do it, it's all there. Shoot me an email if you need and I'll send you some of the, the links that I've used over the years. One of the absolute biggest changes I made during Operation Occupation and probably the simplest I made was to start using occupational language. Now, this rustles a lot of jimmies in the uh, the occupational therapy field because there is a lot of people out there that believe that our language is too jargonish and that we should be changing it because the way we use certain words, example occupation, isn't how it's commonly understood and therefore we should change our vernacular to be more like the layman uh, so that they understand what we do. That's one theory. In my experience with any words really is people don't understand them because they're not exposed to them. That's how people build relationships with language. If I didn't know that an orange was called an orange, then I might call it something else. It's only when I'm taught, when I'm told that this is actually called an orange, that to me, that relationship with that item and that word is built and that connection is made. Using that same theory, talking about occupational deprivation, talking about occupational imbalance, talking about health and wellbeing even, which is sometimes new for some health professionals, they're not... They don't have that relationship between what you're discussing, whether it's a behaviour or an item or whatever it is, and the words that we use until we expose them to them. The biggest, most powerful thing i ever done, I believe, probably in my career, was implement occupational language on that ward. And still to this day, and I remember it clear as one of the proudest moments I ever had, was having a doctor talk to me in a ward round using occupational language and getting it correct, which is also another another thing. But there is nothing as an OT that makes you feel prouder than having influenced another health professional to understand, like really understand what we do. There is nothing like it. Once that happened, that right there was a turning point and that whole ward all of a sudden started understanding what an OT was. They started understanding what I do. They started understanding what I don't do, which is also massively important in a big multidisciplinary team. Quite often, OTs tend to fall into this gap-filler role where if no other profession... Wants to claim a certain job, it falls to the OT. And OTs, as a profession, in my opinion, aren't the most assertive. Yes, there's obviously exceptions to this rule, but as a profession overall, we're not a very assertive profession. We'll take whatever is coming to us. Quite often, our professional identity is whatever is going on because we just want to fit in, we just want to feel like one of the other professionals we want to fit in with that medical model that every other health profession that we usually work with is running on when in my opinion and this is going to be a whole nother topic for probably another podcast occupational therapy does not fit well within that medical model that's going to annoy some people that's okay i understand but I believe that what we have to offer is so much bigger when we realize that we don't have to fit in. We have something so unique and something that other professions wish they had. They don't even come close to having. We have something so special to offer that we don't need to conform to what every other health professional does. We just need to get it through our heads that we can offer that and not be afraid of that. A lot of this kind of stuff is stuff that I talk about quite regularly with new grads who seem to be under the impression or who are slightly disillusioned when they finally graduate and they get out into the real world and it's not exactly like they're expecting it to be when they're at uni doing their case studies or even their placements where they uh, the work that they do is almost targeted towards occupation, but when that influence isn't there pushing that occupational agenda the the roles suddenly transform a bit so i've I've had conversations with so many new grads about well, how can I get my practice back to being more occupation based and more genuine pure ot and these are the 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 sort of things that I talk about so I talk about. One, getting support, having a look through the literature and making sure it's very clear in your head that you have something to offer and it's not that you're making this up, it's it's out there. Um, OT isn't what most people think it is. Use your occupational language. You don't even have to make it a big song and dance about it. Just start using it, people will catch on. I just started using it in ward rounds to describe things that I was uh, working on with people. And I had an occupational screening tool, I guess, that I made that I would write and present in the ward rounds as well, using that occupational language. If you're not familiar with it, another thing I did was just print out each term and a definition and put it on my wall in my office. People would come in and ask questions about it, start the conversation that way. And then me explaining it to them really concreted that into my head as well. And the other thing is to really be assertive. And I know I know that that is really difficult sometimes for a new grad. You graduate uni, you're like, yep, you find your very first job and all you want to do is please people so that, you know, you're doing a good job, you're a great OT, that's all, people, that's all anyone wants is to be a great OT when they first start studying it. And it can be very difficult when you're sort of caught between that, I need to do this, because I need the, the I guess, the praise of the higher-ups to say that I'm doing a great job as an OT, and then deep down you're like, well, this isn't really what I signed up for. It's a really hard internal struggle, that one, and I completely sympathize, I've been there. I've been there a couple of times. Um, and I think it's about finding that balance between like I was talking about earlier with the hours, you can change little things within your environment, within your scope. So even if you can't make drastic changes, something like using occupational language is something you can change without anyone's permission, without any paperwork, any bureaucracy, any planning. You can use your occupational language and it will have a massive impact on your practice down the track once you've been out for a little while, you might be able to then put forward to make some more major practice changes. So there's always something you can do, but I encourage you to stay on top of the evidence base out there. Find some therapists who also share your plight, whether it's that they've been through uh, an occupational practice change, or whether they're in the same situation as you and they're like, well, geez, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Make those connections, make a network, share your story. Keeping that conversation going is part of what will help you work your way through it. The important thing to know is that you are not alone and you don't have to do it alone. If you feel like you're not really practicing in the way that an OT should or that you were taught, then have a conversation. Shoot some emails off. Give someone a phone call that you respect and that you know will understand. Uh, There are a multitude of online groups now that if you're really not sure and you don't know who to turn to, shoot a message to. There's a a massive one called Online Technology for OT, OT for OT on Facebook. There's also the one that I run, which is MH for OT for mental health practitioners. Shoot me an email or a tweet or a message or whatever you want. Um, I'm more than happy to help. There is a range of practitioners out there that are looking into this kind of thing and how to fix it. Um, and I'm more than happy to put you in touch with them. So if this is something you find yourself in, if you're interested in it, let's start a conversation. Let me know what you think. How are you coping with this change in your workplace? Have you been through it before or is it something that you're currently feeling that might be impacting you at the present? Again, thanks for listening and I will talk to you very, very soon.